This is Macro Horizons, episode 160, Geopolitical Containment, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of February 28th. And as concerns regarding COVID recede, only to be overtaken by tensions in Eastern Europe, the one constant has been contagion risk. Nope, no such thing as too soon. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, the biggest news was Russia's decision to move forward with the invasion of the Ukraine. Now, this was initially traded as a bond bullish event with Treasury yields dropping dramatically at the beginning of the week. However, eventually it turned into a somewhat bearish event insofar as the issue appears to be contained to the Ukraine. Now, in the event that Russia's ambitions don't stop at Kiev, then the involvement of NATO countries might become a more realistic scenario. But for the time being, at least, the market seems to be content to assume that the Eastern European issues will largely not impact the U.S. economy. That said, it should contain the extent to which 10 and 30 year yields ultimately back up, if for no other reason than this certainly undermines the global growth outlook, at least on the margin. The impact in the energy sector was initially rather dramatic with the front month WTI contract trading above $100 a barrel, but this too eventually faded as it appears that sanctions are going to be focused on the financial aspects of Russia as opposed to the commodity production side. So where does that leave us from a treasury market perspective? Well, we continue to expect that the Fed will deliver a 25 basis point rate hike at the March meeting. There's been enough chatter about the potential for a 50 basis point liftoff that one can't completely take the discussion off the table. But at the end of the day, we expect that 25 basis points will be the path of least resistance. The logic here being, if the Fed were to lift off with 50 basis points, the market would simply assume that each subsequent hike would be 50 basis points. That would lead to a dramatic spike in front-end yields and almost immediately invert the curve. Now, the Fed has made it abundantly clear in prior cycles, as well as this one, that a flatter curve doesn't necessarily have the same implications for a looming recession. Nonetheless, curve compression is not ideal from the perspective of monetary policymakers. And so if a gradual and predictable hiking cycle can be delivered and the long end of the treasury curve doesn't rally on an outright basis, the Fed would be content to deliver such a scenario. 
The week just passed also contained a couple data points of note. We did have stronger than expected personal spending data and the core PCE number increased as expected, but still at a 5.2% year over year rate. There were also upward revisions to the inflation data contained within the Q4 GDP report. It was striking that consumption was revised lower while the headline price deflator was revised up. The revisions also highlighted that a good portion of Q4's GDP growth was a function of an inventory rebuild. To a large extent, this makes sense given what we have seen in terms of supply chain issues. But nonetheless, it is a doubling down on the bet that the consumer is going to come roaring back in the first quarter. So this inventory overhang does present a material headwind to growth as 2022 gets underway. Well, for those expecting that this was the week the market was going to get a breather, fairly pedestrian auction of twos, fives, and sevens, it did not end up being that week. Not at all, Ben. There were so many developments in the geopolitical sphere that it was difficult for the market to take a breather. In fact, we did see a rather dramatic sequence of price action, including what followed intuitively as a very strong bid for treasuries on the news that Russia was invading the Ukraine, only to be offset with the most durable price action being, of course, the flattening of the curve. And in keeping with the theme of the dramatic moves, not just in rates, but commodities, equities, on Thursday after the world learned that Russia was moving beyond just the separatist regions of eastern Ukraine and mounting a full-scale invasion of the country, we saw the Nasdaq open down 3% to close the session up 3%, and oil begin the session north of $100 a barrel, only to make a complete round trip and close the day in the low $90 a barrel range. In addition to the conflict itself, there was also the nuance of what we're continuing to learn about the West's sanctions on Russia in an effort to inflict economic damage, given that at this point it's become very clear that there is effectively no appetite for a direct military conflict. Of course, assuming that the invasion does not spread beyond Ukraine's borders. And that's what it really comes down to. It's an Article 5 of NATO issue. Is the U.S. going to be called upon to defend NATO countries, whether it's Poland or another country that is neighboring the Ukraine? As it currently stands, the market is assuming that Putin's ambitions end with the Ukraine. In the event that there's more saber rattling in the weeks to come, Surely there will be questions about whether or not boots on the ground will be warranted. Nonetheless, we're operating under the assumption that the crisis will be contained to the Ukraine. And as we have seen by the sanctions imposed by the West thus far, there's also a notable lack of interest in tampering with the energy flowing out of Russia. And politics of the issue aside, this is simply a result of the construction of the global energy market. Germany gets 55% of its natural gas from Russia, and even the U.S. is an importer of Russian oil. So while, yes, in terms of economic damage, targeting the oil and gas sector in Russia would be very damaging to their economy, for better or worse, on a global scale, the economy needs energy coming out of Russia. 
And this fact is not wasted on the EU or the US, which goes a meaningful distance in helping explain why, at this point, the sanctions are very financial-focused, Russian banks, restrictions on individuals, and really an effort to limit Russia's access to global capital markets and currencies outside of the ruble, which did reach its all-time low versus the dollar as news began to hit the tape that the Russian military was moving more completely into Ukraine. Bringing it back to the U.S. rates market, the implications for monetary policy are less obvious. At the beginning of the process, we were trading this from an inflationary perspective. So during several sessions, we saw a push flatter in the curve and upward pressure on front-end yields. The idea there being that elevated energy prices would flow through to the U.S. economy and contribute to an already rapid pace of consumer price inflation. The fact that oil has retreated from the $100 a barrel level does speak to this containment notion and also leaves the market to focus on the broader geopolitical concerns that arise when one contemplates what other potentially contested regions could come into focus over the balance of the year. And the follow-up notion that's been making the rounds this week is, does this increase tensions in the Taiwan Strait? Obviously, Taiwan's relationship with mainland China is going to continue to be an area of focus on the geopolitical stage, as well as how Beijing is viewing the latest escalation in Ukraine within their broader aspirations on the international stage. At this point, it doesn't seem that there's any indication this is more than just another geopolitical discussion point, but in a world that's now more uncertain than it was coming into 2022, this will almost certainly continue to occupy at least a portion of the market's discussion. And let us not forget about the cyber attack angle. A lot has been made about any potential escalation to go global insofar as vulnerabilities of banking and infrastructure systems. Now, we certainly have no insight to offer in that regard other than to observe that it will be a background risk over the next several months. And this part of the discussion, Ian, helps explain why the market has traded the latest leg of the conflict as more of a risk-off impulse and dovish monetary policy one, as opposed to the inflation side. We saw the April Fed Fund's futures contract move from trading with an implied yield of 44 basis points to as low as 35 basis points in just one session. And in practical terms, what that points to is that investors are interpreting the invasion as inspiring a bit more patience by the FOMC. We did hear from Governor Waller that he thinks there's a strong case to be made for a 50-bit liftoff, but in a similar fashion to Bullard, that really is in keeping with his more hawkish tendencies. So on net, the last week has reinforced our baseline assumption that on March 16th, the FOMC will increase policy rates by 25 basis points and signal that a quarter point cadence will be the norm for this cycle. Now, we also continue to believe that the backbone of the hiking cycle will be quarterly moves. However, we're certainly open to a move in May as well to really kickstart the process of rate normalization before the balance sheet runoff is subsequently announced in July. And that blueprint is probably pretty well priced into the market at this point, if only given the sponsorship that we saw for twos, fives, and even sevens at their auctions over this past week. Twos and fives both showed record non-dealer allocations and an indication that, given the amount of hawkishness that's been priced in so far this year, the increase in treasury yields in the sectors most beholden to Fed policy has now reached a point to bring in fairly significant dip-buying interest. 
After all, it's been a very dramatic move to begin the year as we transitioned from the December SEP forecasting just three rate hikes to now the debate centering on five or six. And to be fair, there is a debate that we might see more than five or six rate hikes, even though at this point, the Fed Fund's futures market is pricing in slightly more than six 25 basis point moves for 2022. It will be interesting to see how the Fed chooses to adjust its projections. The perception that the Fed is going to need to aggressively respond to inflation does bring into question what that will do to real GDP in the coming years. Now, as it currently stands, the assumption is that price stability will help hiring and it won't come at the expense of real consumption. Obviously, if the Fed takes the edge off of inflation in real terms, spending should improve for the same amount of nominal growth. That said, another key debate that will surely be in focus come the 16th of March will be whether or not the Fed is comfortable increasing its guidance related to the terminal policy rate. As it presently stands right now, the long-run Fed funds futures projection is 2.5%. There's a strong argument that that should be higher. Although whether the Fed would ultimately be able to achieve that level is another story altogether. And this week is the final opportunity for FOMC members to offer their opinion before we get into the radio silence period ahead of the meeting. We've heard from Governor Waller. We've heard from New York Fed President Williams. But this week, carrying the greatest weight will be Powell's Humphrey Hawkins testimony to both the House and the Senate, where he will weigh in on the 25 versus 50 debate and just how aggressive the Fed will be in running down Selma's holdings. We're still in this camp expecting that balance sheet normalization will be announced in July, but there is certainly the risk that the chair indicates he would favor beginning that process before the end of the first half of the year. And Powell will certainly also receive questions on how the situation in the Ukraine impacts the economic outlook. While the market seems to be comfortable trading it from the inflation side, I suspect that at the end of the day, the Fed will be more concerned about the global growth outlook if we continue to see geopolitical tensions increase. But at this point, it's safe to say that these concerns may moderate the aggressiveness with which the Fed and, frankly, other central banks are going to normalize policy, but it has not taken rate hikes or QT off the table. So in terms of what it means for the shape of the curve, this will continue to set a floor for front-end yields, twos through fives, while conversely, the growth and inflation outlook is going to serve as a drag on the longer end. That doesn't take another shot at that 206 level and 10-year yields off the table, but over the longer term, it will likely keep the curve persistently in this flatter range that we're quickly becoming accustomed to. And flatter to the point of inversion in twos, tens in particular. We did get as low as 33 basis points in twos, tens, and we expect that once the hiking process is officially underway, that that pressure will once again reemerge with an initial target being 25 basis points from here. So despite not even seeing the first rate hike of the cycle yet, at this point, not fighting the Fed is otherwise said as not fading the flattener. In the week ahead, there are several factors that will be driving the direction of U.S. rates, the most obvious being the ongoing developments in Eastern Europe 
as Russia continues to push through the Ukraine and concerns about approaching the borders of NATO countries remain, we expect that this will provide at least a degree of underlying bond bullishness. In terms of real economic data, Friday's non-farm payrolls is expected to show a 400,000 job increase in the month of February, and the unemployment rate is expected to print at just 3.9%. Below 4% at this point in the cycle is encouraging, although we will highlight that the labor force participation rate remains stubbornly low at this point in the cycle, and a lot of that has to do with the 55 and older cohort leaving the labor force and presumably bringing forward retirement plans. That said, the labor force participation in the 34 to 44-year-old cohort continues to be lower than it was prior to the pandemic, and a lot of that, we suspect, ultimately comes down to in-person learning and the availability and accessibility of childcare. So as we continue to see pandemic restrictions eased and the market look forward to a post-COVID world, we would, all else being equal, anticipate the labor force participation will continue to rise. Also contained in the week ahead will be the ISM manufacturing and service sector prints. Here we will continue to anticipate optimism on both fronts, with special attention paid to the service sector, given that the real economy is now transitioning to the point where we would expect a rotation out of goods consumption and into service spending to accelerate as those pandemic restrictions continue to ease. Let us not forget that we do hear from Powell, who will be giving his semi-annual congressional testimony, both to the House and the Senate, with a variety of questions certain to bring up concerns regarding whether or not the Ukraine will have a more meaningful impact on the U.S. economy. Trade between the U.S. and the Ukraine and Russia, for that matter, is relatively limited, and so there'll be less of an immediate hit in terms of growth. The more tangible concerns will likely be related to investor sentiment, the potential fallout in terms of the wealth effect, and of course, any implications for the energy complex. At present, the upward pressure on oil prices seems to have run its course for the time being, but that's not to imply that we can't see another surge higher in oil and natural gas prices in the event that sanctions either become more sector-specific or that there are other regions that begin to suffer from increased geopolitical tensions. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And with March coming in like a lion, we're reminded that the 74th day of the Roman calendar not only marks the empire's deadline for settling debts and the notorious assassination of Julius Caesar. Best salad ever. This year, it corresponds to the beginning of the FOMC meeting in which liftoff is a foregone conclusion. A2, Jerome? Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. 
You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.